Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a scathing attack on the West, Russian President Vladimir Putin declared that the world faces the most dangerous decade since the Second World War. He spoke of nuclear blackmail and the West's dangerous, bloody and dirty tactics. Yet, at the same time, Putin has been playing his own dangerous game with nuclear weapons. Not only has President Putin reaffirmed that he will use every available weapon in the Russian arsenal, which includes tactical nukes, but Russia has also made unsubstantiated claims that Ukraine is preparing to deploy a dirty bomb, which is a mix of explosives and radioactive waste. This has led many in the West, including President Biden, to wonder if such claims are laying the ground for the launch of Russia's own tactical nuclear strikes. I'm your host, James Rogers, and here on the Warfare Podcast, I wanted to put these latest tensions into their proper historical context by taking a deep dive into what tactical nuclear weapons actually are. To do this, I've invited my old friend, Dr. Jean-Francois J.F. Belanger, back onto the podcast. Now, J.F. is our regular nuclear expert by now and an advisor to the Canadian Ministry of Defence. He's also a postdoctoral fellow in defence and security at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Put simply, J.F. is exactly the person we need to understand the history behind these latest nuclear escalations. Enjoy. Hey, Jean-Francois, welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. I think by this point, you've become our resident nuclear expert. And seeing as we live in worrying times, we really had to get you back on. Glad to be of service. It's always a pleasure. Well, you say that, but the US has said that the world faces the gravest nuclear danger since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's because Russian President Vladimir Putin has not ruled out the use of tactical nukes on the battlefield. In fact, him and others within the Kremlin have explicitly stated that Russia is prepared to use all of its vast arsenal in defence of Russia. And the trouble with that, JF, as you know all too well, is that Russia has slightly expanded its boundaries recently by decree and by what we believe to be a fabricated democratic vote. And so that's that means if the Ukrainian military want to take back its sovereign territory, it technically, according to Putin at least, may be invading Russian interests. And so at that point, you start to have a world where you see the possibility of tactical nukes being used. But I'm using this term over and over again, tactical nuclear 
weapons. What is a tactical nuke? A tactical nuclear weapon is what we call the battlefield-ready missile with low yield. And what we mean by low yield is an amount of kiloton that creates a smaller detonation radius and also smaller radiation radius so that you can use them in more contained environment, such as a war theater, for example, or a particular battle. To give you just a really quick example, if we use a tactical weapon as a ground detonation, you're probably looking at a radius that would go from 300 meters for the blast up to about maybe 1.1 kilometer for the radiation radius. But the fatalities within that area would be significant. But it's not something that you expect to see at counter value, which is the technical term to say against civilians. The idea of tactical nuclear weapons is to use them as a counterforce, which is against either military installations or military personnel. That sends a bit of a shudder down your spine, doesn't it? It's almost like a, trying to justify an acceptable face of nuclear war. But in reality, this would be mass amounts of casualties. Let's say you had Allied forces moving forward during the Cold War towards Soviet borders, then you would have had these weapons used against advancing troops, which would have wiped out an entire battalion. That was what they were designed to be used for. Yes, that was the idea. And to be able to use them also probably against smaller military installations, right? So you would have High casualties, but also you, you could affect structures depending on whether it's detonated in the air or detonated on the ground. But let, yes, let's make no mistake. These remains nuclear weapons with the effect of nuclear weapons. It's just that since the yield is, is smaller, the idea is that you can use them in more contained setting. However, let me give you an example of what the United States has in its arsenal, the B-61, and it has a variable yield to it that it can have. The lowest it goes, I believe, is 0.3 kiloton. The highest is 340. Now, to put this into perspective, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were respectively 15 and 20 kilotons. When we think 340, we're talking the big thermonuclear weapons of the Cold War designed to wipe entire cities and inflict mass casualties. And on the other end of the spectrum, when we're at 0.3, it's the smaller yield. The United States still have about 100 of those. I see. And how many does Russia have? Russia has about 2,000 non-strategic warheads at the moment. And perhaps the most well-known system, or at least a system that is talked about the most, is the Iskander system, which is designated as SS-26 by, by NATO. It's a mobile system on a truck. It's a launch pad that is essentially a truck. That is a missile that can reach about 300 miles, which is something that, and now this is, and I want to make absolutely clear to you, listener, this is a highly hypothetical, but if they were to be used in Ukraine, this is probably some of the weapons that would be used. And I believe the Russian have something like about 102 of those, but in their larger arsenal, they have about 2,000. Okay, so let me try and unpack that a little bit, because it's lots of technical details. But as I see it, you've got these tactical weapons that are used on the battlefield or for limited objectives. And they can be smaller in yield, up to, like you say, the smallest being 0.3. And that will have an impact over a few hundred feet, up to a couple of kilometers. 
And then you've got these larger strategic weapons that are part of America's deterrence posture and kind of the big weapons that would be used in all-out nuclear war. And these can range from a few hundred kilotons to, I think the largest was the Tsar bomber, which was 57 megatons and was dropped on the Arctic by Khrushchev as a means to warn a, a new young President Kennedy of what the Soviet Union was capable of. So that's the scale of things we're talking about here. And so when we're talking about the tactical nukes, we're not only talking about the battlefield frontline sharp edge of nukes, but we're talking about those that realistically would be the first ones to be used that then might start a chain reaction that would lead to the build-up towards ever greater nukes being used. James, you're wonderful. You've just put your finger on the actual issue here, in my opinion. Because how tactical is tactical weapons when they remain nuclear weapons? And I'm going to explain myself very briefly. There is an understanding in my field. There's two competing theories that argue something similar. It's the nuclear taboo on the one hand and the tradition of non-use on the other. And the argument is that nuclear weapons have been demonized over time. Right? There was attempt to use them. Right, uh, we, we remember the Korean War, the discussions yes. with him. MacArthur wanted to push Truman into using nukes on Korea, but didn't Truman say, I can't drop nukes onto uh, another Asian country twice within a decade? Exactly. And then I believe Truman said that nuclear weapons only serve to kill women and children, and he was reluctant to use them. But th there was attempt. When Eisenhower got empowered, and him and duels were at the forefront of U.S. foreign policy during the Korean War, they had discussion about using nuclear weapons because they understood and they stated the fact that if they did not use them, they would probably create an incentive against using them in the future. The more we wait to use them, the less easy it would be to. And then we get the Cuban Missile Crisis that puts what... The, the fear of nuclear Armageddon on the forefront of everybody's mind for about two weeks. Although we now know that Khrushchev had absolutely no intention of authorizing nuclear use. However, nobody knew that at the time outside of him and a few of his inner circle. And we also know that General Curtis LeMay, bombs away LeMay, was in the Oval Office in the ear of Kennedy pushing to have nukes dropped onto Cuba to knock out the missile sites they were building. So, you know, Khrushchev may well have been playing around with the idea and, you know, bolstering and pushing forwards to try and intimidate Kennedy. But this doesn't take into effect of what the other side is thinking. And if you push someone far enough, you can still trigger a nuclear conflict. Absolutely. Absolutely. In most of the understanding of nuclear conflict these days, it's never an intentional decision. It's always an escalation that either comes from miscalculation, accidents, misperceived situation, and so on, where we believe that the nuclear strike is coming from the other side, where it's actually not coming. But then you're faced with a situation where do we respond first? Do we take the chance not to? That's the thinking of how the field sees nuclear escalation happening. 
Now, Jeff, you mentioned Korea, and that interests me because MacArthur wants to use these weapons at a point where he's deemed to be failing, and he's relieved at command at one point, and Ridgeway's put in charge. MacArthur is a bit of a gambler when it comes to strategy. And so is he trying to use nukes in a tactical way? Is he trying to use tactical nukes to try and stop the advancing masses of Chinese and North Korean troops? Is it an attempt to try and stop the US being overwhelmed on the Korean Peninsula? At that moment, I think we can understand the decision as yes. The idea of using them on the battlefield as a cheaper way of gaining an upper hand during the conflict, which would fit with tactical weapons, right? right? The definition of tactical weapons that we talked about. And it's also at a time where we were just, Hiroshima and Nagasaki was not too far behind and the use of nuclear weapon was still very prevalent in many circles of how to conduct war. So I think your example is, is very apt of what early thinking of what tactical weapons on a battleground could be used for. And it's fascinating what you say about the idea that because of those political decisions back then, because they held back from taking this magic weapon out of their bag of tricks and just using it whenever they wanted to, because of those decisions decades ago, we're at a point now where it would be almost unacceptable. It's the reason why we're talking about this on this podcast, because the idea of using these nukes is unbelievable within the international system today. Did we see the same sort of discussions and restraint in Vietnam? We did. There was discussion in Vietnam to use nuclear weapons during the conflict. But once again, the odious of them, the idea of what if and what could happen if we do with a consideration for the international discussion around nuclear weapon brought us all back. So if we string everything we're talking about, Korea, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Vietnam, we're starting to see a picture. And I have this great anecdote for you that I heard a few years ago of the record. I'm not going to cite who mentioned it. However, I, I'm going to tell you that it came from a very- You're Very covert and spooky, spooky, JF. I don't know who you talked to when no, the doors No, I mean, are closed. it was a Chatham House kind of thing. So I don't, I don't, I want to respect that, but I do think that the anecdote is wonderful. After 9-11, not very long after 9-11, the United States had a pretty good idea of where Osama bin Laden and some of his top executive were in the mountains of Tora Bora. They did not have exact intelligence, but they knew pretty well how, in which general location that they were. We're talking a table with George Bush, Colin Powell, Paul Wolfowitz, and Rumsfeld. Not one of them suggested the possibility of using, for example, a B-61 in the area to literally kill the entire top leadership of Al-Qaeda in one strike. So is this the when they're hiding in the Tora Bora Mountains in Afghanistan? The idea was just to obliterate the mountain. But the, the idea is that they never talked about this. They never put nuclear use on the table to take care of the situation. So that, at least to me, when I heard this, and everybody that is a detractor of the nuclear taboo as a good argument, I point them in this direction to say that even some of the most hawkish policymaker of U.S. administration in recent years didn't even consider the possibility of a tactical nuclear strike on the Torpa mountain to kill Osama bin Laden when they had the chance. We went to conventional weaponry and so on, and then we know what happened and, and what continued afterwards.
Have you ever wondered if those pointy medieval shoes gave you bunions? Would you be friends with someone who had leprosy in the Middle Ages? And what on earth does that Bluetooth symbol on your phone have to do with the Vikings? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and on Gone Medieval we find those answers for you, talking everything from saints to sacrifices, runes to relics, sex to science. Join me, Dr Kat Jarman, and my co-host Matt Lewis for everything from berserkers to battles and runes to raids. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I remember during the Trump administration, they infamously dropped what is called the Moab the mother of all bombs, onto the mountain ranges in Afghanistan to try and flush out the Taliban at this point in time. And I think it was also a Trump trying to, to flex his muscles, or some say actually he'd passed command down so far to his commanders in the battlefield that they decided just to use them themselves without Trump even approving it. But here's the point. The Moab is a conventional weapon, a non-nuclear weapon, that has the ability to cause more of a blast damage radius than one of the smaller, low-yield 0.3 tactical nukes. So what I don't get, JF, is that Putin can be flexing all he likes, left, right, and center, 
But what is the strategic need? What is the military effectiveness of dropping one of these tactical nukes when a conventional weapon can do the same job? We've already seen he's using thermobaric weapons that can suck the air out of the lungs of civilians on the ground and then thrust vast explosive damage across city centres. Has he not already reached that threshold in terms of the explosive yield of weapons? You have, in a magnificent fashion, I must say, shown the darker side of the nuclear taboo. Because while we had a demonization of nuclear weapon, what it also did was create legitimacy for other forms of weapons of war, which is conventional weaponry. But as you just outlined to us, Conventional weaponry has become excessively advanced and can wreck a humongous amount of destruction in itself. I'm thinking also of like Prompt Global Strike Project that was to put like high TNT warheads on ICBMs. And when you look at the blast radius of those, they're massive as well, right? So the, the need of nuclear weapons is not there. The, in my opinion, the use of nuclear weapon would be Outside of deterrence, if we're talking battlefield, it would be as a punishment gesture because of the radiation, right? What, what those, those conventional weapons don't have is this radiation that is going to then spread afterwards and increase casualties outside of the blast site that you wanted. So I see, my, at least for myself, I see it as a punishment weapon. Is it a punishment weapon or is it a terrorizing weapon? We've seen that recently Putin has given the approval for drones to be used on Kiev, killing innocent civilians, hitting civilian targets. We see this as kind of being a vengeance attack against Kiev for the attacks on the Crimea Bridge. And for me, when I was looking at them, I I just thought they were like V1s and V2s. They're designed to take revenge against these capital cities of your enemy, just like they were used in 1944-45, against London. And so with that in mind, with Putin's terror and vengeance in mind, are we thinking more that these tactical nukes are a kind of terrorising chip for international politics. It's a weapon of a, a weak Putin that knows he doesn't have much else to gamble with. And so when he gets around the table to try and negotiate a peace and to try and keep those territories, or at least try and keep Crimea, which he sees as being vital for the Black Sea fleet, well, this is his thing of saying, let me keep it, or else these weapons with this massive fallout capacity will be used. Yeah, I think it's 100% coercive diplomacy at this point to try and get all of the players involved to the negotiating table as fast as possible, despite public statements otherwise at times, and also try to get a better bargain out of this, protect Crimea, maybe also try to get some of the annexed territories to recognize in some fashion. Because let's be real, I, I personally don't think that tactical nuclear weapons exist. In the sense that all of them are basically strategic in nature now because what do you think would be the chain reaction if, for example, Putin used a tactical nuclear use on the battlefield in Luangs, for example? Personally, I think it would take great restraint from global leaders in the West um, to not retaliate kind of an eye for an eye. I don't think that would happen. I don't think it would be a nuke for a nuke. Instead, what I would see is that because the West has developed these high-yield conventional weapons, just like we were talking about, you would see a massive degrading of Russian nuclear capabilities. You would see missiles flying in to take out 
key Russian sites so they wouldn't be able to use these weapons again. It might be as far as kind of blowing up those truck launch missiles like you've mentioned, or it could be as far as taking out certain silos in certain places to show Putin that we know where these weapons are. The trouble is, is then you start to get into to rocking the delicate balance of power, the delicate balance of terror and nuclear war that we've created over the last 70 years. Because you start taking out Russian strategic weapons, larger weapons, and Russia might think, well, we're going to be degraded to a point where we can't attack the US back if it attacks us. And so we need to do a first strike and launch first. So it completely undermines the entirety of mutually assured destruction. And it's at this point, JF, that you're completely right. There is no such thing as a tactical nuke, because all of it, if you play it out in a certain way, in a rational way, seems to see us at the point of Armageddon. Yes. I mean, I think what you just did for us is a thought experiment of one pathway that a nuclear launch in Ukraine could take us, right? there. I think there's others that could be taken. Do you, do you see another pathway? Um, I mean, in all of those pathways, there's escalation, and escalation that will become difficult to control. Now, what I'm not sure is, but we know that the United States have plans to strike, the, the United States and NATO, to strike at missile sites and nuclear installation deep within Russia, in case of a larger conflict, we know these plans exist. What I'm not sure is how fast they would be to use them after the use of one tactical weapon. I think it would also, it would depend in large part as to the international community's response and see how it goes. They would destroy target. They would for sure first shore up their support to Ukraine and give them weaponry that they've refused to give them up till now, like the Harimark. And I, mean, I see no reason why Patriot anti-missile batteries would not be moved to the Ukrainian theater. They would most certainly destroy the launch site of the weapon to show that they knew where it was and that they can do it again. Because, okay, let's end this on a more stressful note. There's discussion in, in my field about how far U.S. technology has gotten into targeting, into uh, anti-submarine warfare and radar. And plus missile defense. And what is being slowly being argued is that the, this balance of terror, this delicate balance of terror may no longer exist as stable as we thought that it was, mainly because the United States can disable most Russian submarines because they know where they are. They have targeting systems that are very precise that can destroy most Russian silos. And they have very good radar technology and intelligence services know what's going on. And if some missiles go through, well, they have missile defense. Now, all of this is theoretical in the sense as we see the technology, we see what they can do, and then we try to conjecture what we could see out of it. But there remains a lot of uncertainty, right? Because even if you miss one of those larger strategic bombs and it hits a U.S. city, it's unacceptable for the United States, right? So the balance remained because there, there's still an uncertainty as to the rate of success of an operation like this. Because in what you're telling me, what I'm, what I'm hearing in that scenario is uncertainty at every single step. And uncertainty is the backbone of mutually assured destruction. And what interests me there, though, is that you predict more certainty in the system because the US knows that it can take these out whenever it likes. And so it has the flexibility not to then panic 
and take out these strategic sites in Russia. And instead, it can wait and see how the international community reacts to Putin's decision. And is it not the case, JF, if we bring this round to perhaps a, a more positive note to finish on, that if Putin was to use these weapons, which we both agree is unlikely, that he would be shunned by the international community. It would be a state at which India, which has been buying more and more Russian resources, would have to make a stand at this point in the decision about its own politics. Remember, as a nuclear-weaponed state, a nuclear-armed state, and China, President Xi, is going to have to make some difficult decisions himself. Do you want to align yourself with someone that breaks the biggest taboo in the system? Yes, that's very apt. Especially, I was thinking, as you were were talking, I was thinking of the Chinese and how the line that they've been using is, well, we've always been against territorial aggression, right? So we'll support Russia in their territorial integrity, but not in conquest, so to speak, right? I mean, that's not exactly how it's said, but I think when you read the statement, that's how it comes out. Now, how do they square that circle if you had a nuclear strike in theater with that? You're absolutely right that they would need to make very difficult decisions. And although the decision may not be that difficult, depending on how the world swing, right? It might also be an opportunity to re, not align with the United States, but rebuild some bridges that have been slowly crumbling since the pivot to Asia and then the Trump administration, Chinese policy and the bid in Chinese policy, uh, foreign policy at the moment, especially the stand towards Taiwan. But on the other side, they would, the Chinese would probably be very observant of what the actual response is, considering their own design on Taiwan. But yes, I think, at least in my opinion, I'm not in Putin's shoes, there is no clear incentives to me at the moment as to why Putin would use a nuclear weapon. Now, if it was, like, if we have this crazy hypothetical scenario where, for example, the Ukrainian are very successful and they decide, oh, we're going to go and get some pockets of territory in Russia. Okay, maybe we're talking. Let's have a podcast again and talk about how credible those are if that happens. But we both know you and I, that's not Ukrainian objective at all. Now, the real, at least to me, the real point of contention is going to be around Crimea. Now, there's been strike on Crimea, but there's not been any effort, like full on efforts to retake it. If that happens, let's talk again. I think this would be, at least in the expected current of the war, that might be kind of the hottest spot where this discussion could really have some credibility. But as of right now, and I'm not even sure that the Ukrainians are going to try and retake Crimea. But if there's a, a takeaway for the listeners, I, there's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapons. It's the same kind of word play that we use in conventional wars when we talk about kinetic operations. It means nothing, right? It desensitizes you to actually what a kinetic engagement is, it's an attack that leads to casualties and death. A nuke but it's, is a nuke is a nuke, is what you're saying. A nuke yeah. is a nuke is a nuke. And I think in large part because of how they have been slowly portrayed and demonized and pushed out of the regular war tools over time. 
And I think you frame that to us so well about how this nuclear taboo was framed over time. And it's one of the more optimistic points of humanity that we do take weapons that we see as causing unnecessary suffering and we push them to the edges of acceptable use. And in some cases, we ban them like we've seen with chemical weapons and with cluster bombs. And let's hope we can do that with nukes into the future as well. JF, thank you so much for your time today. Can you tell our listeners where they can read more about your expert work on on nuclear strategy. Yes, I have a recent article that focuses on that question, of course, of diplomacy, credibility, and nuclear use in a book called New Perspective of Diplomacy, edited by Alistair Macer, Sue Spence, and the very great Claire York at IB Taurus. I have a working paper that should be online soon that I've co-written with Terence Rohring, uh, who's at the U.S. Naval War College uh, with the Defense and Security Foresight Group working papers. This should be online in the next couple of weeks. Uh, if you want to hear more about the nuclear taboo, don't want to read the whole thing, but wants the digestible uh, part I, in the Sage Encyclopedia of Political Behavior, I've written an entry with TV Paul on the question. And I am currently finishing a book that doesn't have a press yet, some are interested, I'm not going to put them up on the podcast, on preventive attacks against nascent proliferator that I have titled How Competence Matters, Counterproliferation Politics, and the Practice of Deterrence. Uh, if everything goes well, expect that by 2024 uh, or something like this, given uh, regular delays. Thank you so much, Jeff. There's lots going on by the sounds of it. You're a busy, busy man. We'll have to get you back on the podcast when that book is published. And of course, as you know, you are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks for listening. But before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.